The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Wednesday, September 4th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's kind of hard to figure out what's going on with Brexit over there in the UK, or as I call it, prorogation nation. Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a few days ago that he wanted a vote, the kind of which Theresa May always failed. So why was he doing that? Did he have a secret strategy, some keen insight? Had we all been sucked in by his apparent disheveled half-assery, only to find out that Boris is wholly in control of events? No, no, we're not. Here's what happened. Boris Johnson could not solve the problem, so he tried to dissolve Parliament. But that was entangled. Also in dissolution was his plan for a snap election after all of the opposition and some of his erstwhile supporters weren't in favor of that. Parliament also voted to ban exiting the EU without a plan in place. In other words, they said no to the famous no deal Brexit. Now, I have to say, even though the English invented the rules of English, in this case, the double negative doesn't equal a positive. No to no deal does not mean they have a deal. So what does Labour propose? Prime Minister Johnson charged Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn of lacking the clear-eyed, goal-oriented, laser focus of him, Boris Johnson. We delayed in March, we delayed in April, and now we want to de- he wants to delay again for absolutely no purpose, whatever. What does he intend by this? Johnson then mocked what slogans demonstrators in favor of some Corbyn position might what adopt. Do we want? What do we want? Dither and delay. When do we want it? We don't know. That's his policy. No, no, no. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. You don't delay the dithering. You commit to the dithering. If you delay dithering, you're actually doing the thing. Boris really has an active person's opinion of inactivity. But guess what? The theme of not just dither, but delay came up once again. Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, what he is recommending is yet more, yet more dither, yet more dither. Yet more delay, yet more uncertainty for business. But before the right honorable gentleman from the middle of a windstorm could allege that the opposition dawdled or dallied or dilly-dallied or diddle-daddled, he launched another sally at the right honorable MP Corbyn. Are you ready? This is what qualifies as calumny in the UK. But Mr. Speaker, I know he's worried about free trade deals with America, but there's only one chlorinated chicken that I can see in this house, and he's on that bench. Will he confirm again? A chlorinated chicken. This is the horror that Johnson alleges. Corbyn, so eager to have trade deals with those United States over there, he'd be willing to allow a staple of American agribusiness onto British dinner plates. And that's chicken washed with chlorine. That's how we do it here. But the EU has higher standards. And if you've ever tasted a hen in Fenwick or a cocoa van in the West Midlands, you know the difference. So that is all they can agree on. Chlorinated chicken wrong. Jeremy Corbyn, a little like a chlorinated chicken. But of course, Boris Johnson's glorious Brexit plan is a lot like the anecdote he used to tell about EU inspectors examining the curvature of bananas. It's interesting to consider it doesn't actually exist. On the show today, I worry about the worry about black women and childbirth. 
It's long. But first, my following guest is a lobbyist. Boo. But for good causes. Yay. But don't the coal lobbyists say that too? We'll find out with white hat lobbyist Tom Sheridan up next. Thomas F. Sheridan is a lobbyist. Keep listening because he is a self-described white hat lobbyist. And I know this because not only is that the description on the cover of his book, Helping the Good Do Better, but there is a picture of a white hat. It is a white, I would say a straw boater type hat, the most benign of the hats. But I'm not going to just let a lobbyist get away with calling himself a white hat lobbyist. I'm going to press him on that. Is that, is that okay with you, Tom? It's great with me. All right. How'd you get into lobbying? Was it, Did the activism come first or the knowledge of the levers of power come first? So I'm a social worker by profession, and I became an advocate by trade. And my first job as a social worker uh, in New York was uh, opening up group homes for people with developmental disabilities. And my first job, my first task was to get a zoning board to approve the permits for the house. And yes. if you've ever wanted to see raw, nasty politics in action, meet your local zoning board. When you first got into it, were even white hat lobbyists, were they more akin to mom and pop shops than the big, robust organization you had now? So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I worked for the Child Welfare League of America. I worked for the National Association of Social Workers. Uh, you know, I worked for AIDS Action Council before starting my own firm. Uh, and, you know, that was the traditional way that white hat lobbying was done. It was done inside of, you know, associations and advocacy groups. But it was usually done, you know, frankly, by people who were believers in a cause, but not necessarily people who were expert in the, the ways of Washington or the levers of policy and politics. So when I founded the firm, the idea was to combine those two things, the idea being that shouldn't people who want the best interest for the public good have as good, if not better, representation than you know corporate lobbyists or people that have you know K Street law firms working for them? Shouldn't we be able to put the same great ideas, great strategies, good discipline together uh, in order to to affect positive social change? So the reason I founded the firm was to be able to make that translation to say we can be as good, if not better, uh, than what money buys because we'll use people power. Lobbying is a protected activity in the Constitution. Do you view lobbying as, well, you do it, so I would assume you wouldn't view it as evil per se or bad per se. I don't know, maybe you view it like a tool and it can be used for good or bad. But do you think there's something inherent in the system and how we use it that tends towards the pernicious? So, uh, you know, Mike, I think you, you hit it straight on the head and you're exactly, it's a constitutional right to petition your government and, and every citizen is entitled to do it and it is what makes democracy vibrant. It what makes it, and when it works best, it works best because we are participating uh, to the full extent of our ability to, to petition and to, you know, and to vote for or against people in government. So that is the promise of, of our democracy. It's the promise of America. What's broken is how it gets used or the corruption or the influence of money in politics. And you know, when people 
you know, simply spend a lot of money and that's what is required to win an election or they spend a lot of money to push you to lose an election, um, that's when we have to ask ourselves some serious questions about what's wrong uh, with our democracy and why isn't it functioning uh, in the way it should uh, function. But, you know, that's also up to us. Uh, as I said, you know, a minute ago, if people are going to make their voting decisions based on who has the prettiest or ugliest 30-second spot on TV, um, then everything's going to be about paying for TV commercials as opposed to taking the right positions on the right issues. Um, so we have to, you know, we can, there's a lot of reform ideas that are out there and many of them I support and Citizens United is an extremely important uh, campaign that we should win soon. Uh, but we have to ask ourselves some tough questions. You know, as citizens, are we participating? Um, you know, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires us to engage in the game and particularly I think that uh, is important right now for good people uh, to take their action and their citizenship seriously and to push forward uh, as aggressively as you watch the other side push. I mean – they're not winning because, you know, because they're right. They're winning because there's a vacuum that they're filling and, you know, that can and should change. Okay. Here's what I want to ask you, though. Do you view what you do as the silver lining in this uh, stormy cloud? Do you view it more like, look, if this, if this sewer is going to exist, I'll just be this nice corner of it. I'm going to work within the system, and I hate the system. There's something inherently corrupt about the system, but I'll do the best I can. Or do you view it more like, look, it's a competition of ideas and influence, and I have some ideas, and I have some influence, and my ideas might be the Save the Children Action Network, and this guy's ideas might be funding ExxonMobil, but they're not inherently different, and it's really up to our elected officials who they listen to and what funding they provide. It's much more the latter. You know, this is our system of government. Um, this is how laws are made. This is how money is spent. This is how budgets are created and approved. So my feeling is, look, you know, the good have to get in the game uh, or the bad will win by default. So that's my motivation to get up every morning is to get out there and to make good part of the game and to do it as as expertly as I know how to do it. I do it with less tools because I don't have Citizens United. I don't have unlimited money. I don't have corporate jets. I don't have PACs. I don't have all the things that sometimes I do think create a corrupting influence on government. What I have are usually very passionate people uh, who care a lot about what they're working on, you know, the, um, people with AIDS, uh, people in poverty, um, people with cancer. Uh, when you get people who are affected, particularly by disease or hardship, uh, frequently you get passion. And it is the translation of that passion into politics that becomes the power uh, that we like to use um, here in D.C. And it's what the book is based on stories uh, of how that has translated into success. How do you recognize what the incentives of different public officials are? You don't you don't champion any bad causes. They're all good, but I'm sure every senator has a dozen good causes, good causes vying for his or her attention. So how do you decide what the senators need and how to give it to them? So mostly it's kind of understanding the state uh, or the district that they're coming from and then understanding how much uh, influence you have in those communities. Uh, sometimes it's direct influence. You have lots of people with cancer who are well organized by the local cancer society or some particular group. Um, sometimes you don't necessarily have 
have a lot of people, but you have a, a number of different influencers, high-level influencers in the community that care about the issue on both sides of the aisle. Like, you know, when I worked on domestic aids early, the churches, the right-wing Christian coalition types were desperately against us. Um, mm-hmm. And we fought them kind of tooth and nail for all the successes we had domestically. You know, 10 years later, when I was working with Bono and Bobby Shriver on uh, international aids, the evangelical community had actually turned to support efforts to protect mostly women and children in Africa who were, you know, being decimated by the pandemic of AIDS, and they became kind of allies and champions. Yeah. Um, so the hard part about the, those things is you have to be very careful not to be in in your own zeal for doing good. You have to be careful not to be too judgmental or too orthodox because your enemy in one campaign could wind up being your ally, you know, down the road in another. And well, you, literally, literally Jesse Helms. Literally that, Jesse that Helms. That happened with Jesse right. Helms. It did. It was yeah. the the most awkward political moment of my career, but it did happen. Tell us about it. <laughs> no, I mean, he was he was our arch enemy uh, on domestic aids. He stopped many pieces of legislation, was, you know, was a, really a – he was a very uh, serious adversary and sometimes got a fatal one. I mean, he did cost, you know, thousands of people their lives because we didn't do anything on domestic aids for many years. Ten years later, as he was older and, in fact, dying himself, he came to recognize uh, – he said through a conversation he had with God that he needed to do more uh, about people with uh, AIDS in poverty, women and children, I think, where he was specifically referring to, and that he wanted help. And he wanted to talk to Bono, who was just starting what was the one campaign and um, what became the one campaign. And he wanted to talk to Bono about how he could help. And in that conversation, uh, we got him on board for what became PEPFAR, which is the, the largest international AIDS program. And by him coming on board, he did signal to uh, you know uh, right-wing conservatives that it was okay to support you know global AIDS. And as a result, we were able to pass PEPFAR by almost nearly unanimous margins in both the House and Senate on the Republican and Democratic side. And it was – for him, I think it was end-of-life redemption. Um, so if you're a believer, you know, maybe that was penance and reconciliation. I don't know what you, you know, different religions call it different things. But he did find his way there. I don't think you – can necessarily forgive, and I, I, I'm clear about this in the book. You know it, the, what he did in the domestic AIDS uh, battle cost you know thousands of people their their lives, and that's clear, and it's on the record, and it's a fact. But what he did at the end of his life was to you know help change that at least on the trajectory of uh, of women and children with AIDS in Africa. So in 1987 or so, when he was torpedoing your domestic AIDS funding agenda, where he was in the Senate cloakroom making it clear that any vote for funding, the senator who did that would get a political campaign where they talked about all the explicit comic books about how to put a condom on. I don't know. Did you hate the guy? Did Ted Kennedy have to talk you out of your hatred? How did you keep, was it because you were far-seeing and professional that you didn't go scorched earth on him? Or was it something else, a strategy that you saw in the long term. It's not a good idea as a lobbyist to piss off any powerful senator. What was it? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is going to sound a little maybe colder than I mean it to sound, but at the end of the day, you needed 51 or 60 votes to beat them. And so I just stayed very focused on what will it take to beat them. 
Um, so I didn't focus on him personally. I tried not to get overly emotional about it. It was hard. I mean, ACT UP was raging around us. People literally, we would have volunteers in our office. We were a, a, very much a volunteer-driven organization. You would come yeah. in on a, on a Monday morning, three people who were volunteers the week before had died over the weekend. I mean, it was friends, a terrible guess time. friends of yours were dying. They were friends, exactly. I mean, we were. I was going to three or four funerals a week. So it was hard not to personalize that. And, you know, grief has an element of rage to it. I just felt like I could channel my grief or my rage into counting votes. And so we just, you know, how do we outsmart them? How do we outmaneuver them? How do we learn the parliamentary procedures of the Senate better than he knew them? And we were just so lucky to have people like Senator Kennedy, um, who, you know, always had a level head and was really smart. He'd been in the Senate for, you know, three decades at that point, And he knew the rules better than anyone else did. And, um, you know, he just made sure that we always, you know, had a kind of an upper hand in coaching and support. And, uh, and that got us through. We lost a lot before we won. But once we started to figure out how to beat them, uh, we, we never lost again. I get the sense from reading the book that you have little to no patience for the idea of good intentions. Well, my mother said that was my worst. <laughs> that was my worst <laughs> personality characteristics. I don't have uh, patience. No, you know, I I admire people with good intentions, but good intentions alone will not get you where you need to go. Well, it does In- seem that some, you know, you'll you'll create a coalition, and then some members of the coalition are very much on board and are driving the process, and others can say, "Oh, well, I have such good intentions," but if they're not. The foot soldiers in the campaign, well, what do the good intentions really get you? They, well, they don't, they don't get you very far. And, you know, that's a hard thing to do because not everybody is at the same level of resources or skill sets, et cetera. So good coalitions find room for everyone to bring something that's helpful. But you have to bring something that's helpful. Uh, and an intention isn't necessarily helpful. It's a, it's a motivation, but it is not actually a service. So if your intention is I'll show up every week and just drop off flyers in Congressional Hill offices with, you know, fact sheets on whatever issue – working on, hey, and that's the best you can do. You're afraid to do a meeting by yourself or you don't have a big grassroots constituency or you can't write a check to help support, you know, buying everybody lunch after lobby day. There's, you know, everyone can contribute something, but it has to be something and intention is just a thought. It's not actually an action. So um, I'm impatient for people who don't bring action. And I'm really impatient. I I would say probably intolerant for people that come to take from a coalition, but don't give anything back. So they come and they listen to the data and they get the strategy and, you know, they get filled in on the inside track and they run back to their offices and they write a memo to their board or they write an article for their newsletter, but they don't show up and and lobby. They don't put their, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak. Uh, I'm very intolerant of that kind of behavior. Well, I'll tell you, coming in, I thought white hat lobbyist was a phrase like one of the good guy telemarketers. But now I I take your point. I'm on board. I'm at least seeing the hat as, you know, at least a light beige. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Hey, it's not easy work. You know, it's like sausage making, right? You you don't always want to see it happening. You don't always want to see, you know, be on the the front lines of it happening. But when the product is done at the end of the day, you know, lots of people enjoy it. And and I think that is, you know, it is the way that government and politics work. You know, lobbying is not for everybody. My mother used to beg me not to tell people I was a lobbyist. She's like, you know, just tell them you're a social worker and tell them them you're anything, but don't don't tell them you're a lobbyist. You're a literal social Sausage maker. I'm a literal sausage maker. <laughs> yes. But hopefully, you know, when the sausage is done, we share it. And, and right. we, we share it the with people who need it. The mustard is spicy and the beer is cold. Right. Helping the good do better, how a white hat lobbyist advocates for social change. Thomas F. Sheridan is the founder and president of the Sheridan Group. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks, Mike. Nice being with you.
And now the spiel. I read an article in the Washington Post today, and it was titled, This Isn't Another Horror Story About Black Motherhood. And indeed, it wasn't. It was about how in August, the U.S. manufacturing sector, amid a tariff war between Washington and Beijing, slipped. No, no, it wasn't that. That wasn't what the article was about. It was about an assemblage of black women at the Momfrance, a gathering of millennial mothers of color in its second year that the author, Helena Andrews Dyer, says feels as intimate as a family reunion, as celebratory as a 21st birthday, and as necessary as a therapy session. It's necessary because, according to Andrews Dyer, quote, the onslaught of bad news about black women and pregnancy that has permeated the headlines for the past two years, a timeline that unfortunately matches up perfectly with my own maternal health cycle, making my first birth feel like a trial by fire, and my second pregnancy at 38, well, I'm still trying to figure this one out. According to the media and a raft of dire stats, I should be preparing for battle. She goes on, the bad news is everywhere, as inescapable this summer as Old Town Road. It is true. Infant mortality and maternal deaths are a real problem in America. We quite shamefully lag behind the rest of the developed world. And the gap between black mothers and white mothers is profound. It's terribly high. And that gap is also terribly high compared to the rest of the world, as Senator Kamala Harris said as she campaigned on the issue. This is one of those truths that must be spoken. This issue of maternal health care and in particular how it relates and affects black women. Here is this truth accurately described by the senator. So it is a truth that we will speak that black women in America are three to four times more likely to die than white women because they choose to become mothers. That is the rate. I went and found the raw numbers because I like numbers. In 2017, about half a million African-American women gave birth. According to the CDC from 2011 to 2015, which is when they have the latest numbers from, 1,252 African-American mothers died during or soon after their pregnancy ended. Comes out to an average of 250 a year. For white women, the number is close to 2 million births per year, an average of 275 maternal deaths. If the United States had a better birthing system, that number would be closer to, say, 75 deaths for white women. And if we had a birthing system that was racially equal, there wouldn't be 250 black women dying a year because of pregnancy, closer to 50 if the U.S. were, say, like Finland. So why is there this persistent gap? Senator Harris offered the following explanation. Acknowledge the implicit bias that is behind part of this problem. That was echoed by a podcast that I listened to called The Stakes. In one recent episode reported by a journalist I know very well and am very fond of, Verilyn Williams, she talked to her friend, who, like Verilyn herself, is in her mid-30s, but unlike Verilyn, was a mother. And you know how we parents are, always in recruitment mode. I don't mean to apply pressure, but, but I do think that you would make a good mother. You want a little Verilyn. But you do understand Verilyn when you... Junior. When you say that, you're like signing me up for like everything you just went through. And what's wrong with that? Okay. As I sit with Leanna in her living room, her smiling baby on her lap, I can feel the joy of motherhood. But honestly, it's always scared me. Creating a person and signing them up for everything that comes with being black in America, I just don't know. 
And then there are the headlines and the calls for action that remind me just how much greater my chances are to die giving birth. It's all extremely overwhelming, especially knowing that where I live, New York City, black women are eight times more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications than white women. Those stats are not inaccurate, but I do think they're incomplete. Yes, New York City is experiencing a particularly acute form of the national problem. But in raw numbers, the total number of white women who died in New York City between 2006 and 2010 in childbirth or thereafter was nine. And for black women during this period, and these were where the latest numbers were from, 2006 to 2010, was 69, though two were from cancer, so I don't think we could count that as pregnancy-related. Nine were from other, but let's be conservative and count them, and let's say 67 women over five years, or 13 black women a year in New York City, died from pregnancy or the complications thereof. The ratio between white women and black women, which is two per year, if you do the math, two per year versus 13 per year, are stark, but when you think of the raw numbers, it gets a little fleshed out. Also considered, there were 40,000 white babies born in New York City and 22,000 African-American babies. I know it seems harsh, but out of 22,000 African-American babies, 13 mothers died. The harsh part is to say the word only. It's, of course, too many. Disparity is something to certainly address, but it is 13 mothers who died. Hispanics, if you're wondering, have maternal mortality very close to white mothers. Hispanics, uh, there were 34,000 births in New York City, an average of six instances of maternal mortality a year. So why is there this difference? Why is there this gap between white maternal mortality and black? Racism, for sure, that is one. It was cited by Kamala Harris. It was also cited in the Stakes podcast. So this kind of thing may deal with part of the problem, the fact that implicit bias keeps doctors from hearing black women when they say they're in distress, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But then... There's this larger problem that the research has established, this thing of weathering in our bodies. Yes. Who can discount the effects of racism in America? But I will point out, because most of the popular press raising awareness about these issues does not, I will point out that black women have conditions going into pregnancy that are correlated to complications with pregnancy. For instance, hypertension can often lead to preeclampsia or eclampsia, and 18.3% of white women have hypertension, 39.5% of black women have it. Also, black women are three times more likely to have fibroids, which are benign tumors that grow in the uterus and can cause postpartum hemorrhaging. Three times more likely to have fibroids than white women. Now, it is true that when e even when normed for the presence of these conditions, and furthermore, when normed for education levels and access to health care and wealth, the maternal mortality gap does not disappear, but it does lessen. And it's still a scandal that a healthy, young, wealthy black woman has approximately the odds of dying during pregnancy as a white woman with an eighth grade education. But my point, or among my points, is that the chance of an eighth grade educated white woman dying is actually pretty low. It should be lower. It should be as low as Estonia, but it's not. And this is why the discussion of two high-profile, complicated pregnancies experienced by black women, Serena Williams and Beyonce's, this is why so many commentators noted that even their wealth and fame and money could not save them from danger, in Williams' case, from almost death. 
I do want to address the exact kind of bias that the senator and the reporter refer to, implicit bias. Implicit bias is a popular notion as of late. We can't dismiss it entirely. But if you really drill down on the evidence that claims to demonstrate implicit bias, it's a pretty weak correlation. Furthermore, there is not a ton of studies that show that implicit bias is a bigger problem in things like the healthcare system dealing with black women or police dealing with black men. There's not a lot of research that suggests that implicit bias is a worse problem than actual explicit bias. There isn't strong causal evidence that poor health care stems from implicit bias. There are, however, some compelling anecdotes. Listen to this one. It's kind of long, but I'll play this excerpt from The Stakes addressing implicit bias. So, Kai, when I started researching doctors who have been thinking about these statistics Mm -hmm. and evaluating how they take care of black women, I was immediately directed to Dr. Deborah Cohan. She's white and wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's called, you ready? Okay. Racist Like Me. (laughs) Okay. And in it, she's examining her own implicit bias and how it affects the care that she's giving black women. And does she get specific? Does she have a specific case she talks about? Well, when we spoke, she told me about a time a pregnant woman was brought into her hospital after having an encounter with the police. So I was interacting with her, and it was just a flash of a moment that I saw in her a character from a movie I had seen. I noticed that. And then I invited myself, you know, I I asked myself, okay, how is this influencing my behavior right now? And I realized that I was sitting further away from her than I usually do. The movie was Sing. Do you know what that's about? I do not know that movie. It's a cartoon, and one of the characters is a gorilla who helps his dad commit robberies. I'm not proud of how that movie got into me, but there are a gang of gorillas who are criminals that feeds into so many just horrific stereotypes of Black people and how they've been compared to animals and how the stereotype of them is so wrapped up with criminal justice. So Cohen notices the association in the moment that she was making between this patient that was sitting in front of her and this character on the movie Sing. And she does move closer to her. Hmm. But as she admits, the damage was already done. Wow. I would call that an outlier. I suppose some could argue, no, no, no. She's just a case of one white OBGYN being honest. I mean, she did write about her experiences in the New England Journal of Medicine. They thought it was worth publishing. But my goodness, perhaps we should just say, okay, this is the extreme example. Uh, It probably is a little more extreme than what goes on every day because I really don't think that many doctors are envisioning their patients as cartoon gorillas. I don't think that's widespread. But perhaps you could say this just really demonstrates what black women go through when they go to a white doctor. Maybe it is. I can't prove otherwise. But I can do this. There is in life, in real life, in demonstrable life, in life in the United States, in the biggest state in the United States, There is hope. There is essentially a cure, and it basically sidesteps the question of whether some version of cartoon gorillas are damaging the health of black mothers in America. 
it basically sidesteps the extremely heavy lift of curing American racism in order to save the lives of women. In California, experts instituted plans, algorithms, they think of them, about what to do during pregnancy. Reporter Sarah Cliff, back when she was at Vox, reported this out extremely thoroughly, and she came on the gist to talk about this California initiative. Well, you look at the rest of the United States and the maternal mortality rate has been going up. It's actually been going down in California. You see the exact opposite trend. Um, And what they have something there, it's called the Maternal Health Collaborative. And they have decided to create those best practices to say, okay, if a woman is hemorrhaging, if she's lost this much amount of blood, here is what you need to do. And they're making and they're doing research to figure out what are the best responses. They're asking providers to, you know, be very scientific about it, to literally, you know, measure the amount of blood that a woman is losing so they can decide what the best intervention is. Yeah, that's right. Elsewhere, doctors who are so assured in their expertise simply eyeball blood loss. But under this initiative, the blood is actually measured and interventions are required based on numbers, not opinions. It's one of the many changes that has brought the maternal mortality rate in California in line with France or Luxembourg or the other advanced economies. White women maternal mortality has been more than halved. Black women's maternal mortality in California has also been halved. Of course, this means the gap still persists, but this is a proven program in Kamala Harris's own state. And therefore, it makes me read with a great deal of skepticism arguments put forth by Elizabeth Dawes Gay, writing in The Nation magazine, who writes an article that's titled, Serena Williams could insist that doctors listen to her, most black women can't. We can't solve America's maternal health problem without first acknowledging how racism harms black moms. Well, maybe we can. I don't know solve, but we can certainly greatly diminish it to the point where we no longer lag our pure nations. I definitely think there's something to retraining physicians to really hear their patients, all their patients who would be against that. I do think there's something to getting the physician pool to resemble demographically the patient pool. But a real solution is really out there. And it does not depend on grappling with such arguments as, in the words of Elizabeth Dawes Gay, black people experience chronic stress resulting from exposure to overt and covert racism and microaggression, which can range from something as basic as intentionally avoiding eye contact to the extreme of being harassed, abused, or killed by police. And racist policies, like those dictating where our children go to school, whether we could vote, how clean the water in our communities need to be, who patrols our neighborhoods, and so on, create structural inequalities that disadvantage black people and set us up to fail. It's a really tall order. 700 to 900 mothers who will die next year and the year after that and the year after that should not have to wait for that level of societal restructuring. Their lives should not depend on intentionally avoided eye contact. And within that critique, which you hear elsewhere, is another point that brings me back to the original article I read, which set me on this path. Remember, it was titled, Not Another Horror Story About Black Motherhood. What is the effect of all these horror stories? Yes, America should know the problem. I'm in favor of more knowledge, less ignorance. And absolutely, it is a problem. But stripped of necessary context, without any raw numbers, 
set against what to black women is a deafening drumbeat. I wonder if all the stress over black maternal mortality might not even be causing some of the black maternal mortality. In fact, the school of thought that emphasizes implicit bias and weathering agrees with me. Because weathering is the idea that a lifetime of accumulated stress weakens us, weakens black Americans acutely. Arlene Geronimus, who's a professor at the University of Michigan Population Studies Center, is the originator of the weathering hypothesis. She defines weathering this way. Processes which siphon energy from the bodily system that aren't enlisted in the fight or flight response, including those that support healthy pregnancies. For people who face chronic threats and hardships, like struggling to make ends meet on a minimum wage job or witnessing racialized police brutality, the fight or flight response may never abate. Geronimus says, quote, it's like facing tigers coming from several directions every day. For a pregnant black woman these days, one of those tigers is said to be the pregnancy itself. And should it be? Pregnancy is, of course, serious and possibly dangerous. It's undoubtedly more fraught for the more vulnerable, and that certainly includes black women for reasons, including their blackness. I am not here to argue otherwise. I imagine a friend of mine who is a black woman and who says, you know, I'm scared of being pregnant because, you know, all the stories, black women die at a remarkable rate. I would say, yes, that's true. And absolutely, of course, take care of yourself. But know that if you're doing your worrying here in New York City, it's something like a dozen black women a year who sadly die. Well, 20,000 don't. And if despair is part of the stress you're feeling, you should know that there's an answer. We should emphasize the answer. And it's being successfully implemented in the largest state in the nation. What a great place to have a successful experiment. So again, pregnancy isn't easy. And I acknowledge I'm a man and a white man at that. And I am not here to diminish or deny your worry and the risk. But maybe I can cite some stats, which never seems to work. Still, maybe I can. And maybe I can argue for some context. And I hope that helps. That's what I would say if I had a friend going through this. And I guess I just did. The Gist is produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. One dithers, the other dawdles. Thing is, we can't figure out which task is assigned to which producer. It's like a Rod and Todd Flanders situation. The Gist, serving up the stats that give comfort to pregnant black ladies everywhere. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.